0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you to the special program series uh, of AccessibleWorld.org. We're here in the auditorium. The date is May 25th, 2010. And once again, we welcome a very dear friend, uh, Ed Cooney. But let me say a few words first, and then we'll properly introduce him. As America enters the second decade of her third century, many of us worry about her future. Is the key to her future partially dependent on what she's learned from her past? Hence, who's learned from, her, uh, from her past? Oh, hence, who's America? How and why was she conceived? Where has she been? What has she thought? What has she done? Is she visionary or afraid? Is she reckless or mature? Is she still young, middle-aged, or is she old? How well equipped is she to cope with a changing world? Is she forever to be the world's superpower, or, like the British Empire, of which she was once briefly a part, might she fade away? These are some of the topics Ed Cooney, a student of American history, will invite you to visit during part one of a presentation, Meet America, Land That We Love on accessible world ladies and gentlemen it's my great privilege and honor at this time to introduce my friend Ed Cooney thank you everybody for being here
1: we the representatives of the United States of America in general congress assembled appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of a right ought to be free and independent states that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved and that is free and independent states They have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things of which independent states may and of right do. And for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence we mutually pledge to each other our lives our fortunes and our sacred honor now I just read to you America's birth certificate if a free nation is ultimately the sum and substance of its people who choose its leadership who sets its policies if the sum and substance of that is a breathing living being then I think we can look at America much as we look at ourselves So, if America is a being, when was America conceived? When was America born? What constituted its infancy? What constituted its childhood or youth? When was America an adolescent? When did America become a young adult? What was America's profession? What was America's faith? Just for the sake of starting things off more or less evenly, let's say that America was conceived in the mid-1760s amidst the discontent of merchants such as Sam Adams and Paul Revere and John Hancock, amidst the discontent of thinker statesmen such as Benjamin Franklin, Patrick Henry, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, amidst the discontent of soldiers such as Israel Putnam and yes, Benedict Arnold and George Washington, all of them chafing at the outrages of Great Britain, the mother country. Perhaps she was conceived about 1765. Britain had just concluded a Seven Years' War. In Europe it was called the Seven Years' War. It was one of the many conflicts that Britain and France had had. And the war was for dominance on the North American continent. The French had been seen antagonizing the Indians making it difficult for settlers to move ever westward. And Britain went to work, went to war for her colonies. She was broke and she needed to fill up her treasury. She had an empire on the other side of the world as well as in America. And so she began ask began to asking Americans to pay the freight. And American is Involved uh, in a depression, which usually follows in the wake of war, didn't feel it had the money. And furthermore, it felt that Britain was asking more than was fair. It began with the Stamp Act, then the Townsend Acts, and then of course the Boston Massacre every passing phase they, things became increasingly tense. And there were the intolerable acts. There were the smuggling courts. There were British soldiers stationed in the homes of some of the more prominent citizens. There was the Quebec Act in which every colony north of the Ohio was drafted into Canada. There were legislatures dissolved. The colonies had to resort to committees of correspondence. And then, of course, there was the first and second Continental Congress. The colonists were very reluctant to break away from Britain. George, after all, was their king. And they shared much in common. with their cousins overseas. The governor of Massachusetts, Thomas Gage, didn't really want to see a war. He wanted to prevent a war. He thought it was time to arrest Samuel Adams and John Hancock, who were raising hell all over Massachusetts. They were holed up in Concord, along with a large store of ammunition. And so on the night of April the 18th, 1775, Governor Gage sent an elite of British troops by water to Lexington to arrest John Adams, Samuel Adams, I'm sorry, Samuel Adams and John Hancock. And suddenly the shot that was heard around the world rang out and the colonies and Great Britain were at war. And yet 15 months, nearly 15 months were to pass before the colonies finally decided to declare their independence. It was Thursday, July the 4th, 1776. America was born that day amidst the crucible of war. last six years, 1776, Well, perhaps, actually you could say seven, it goes back to 1780, 1775, but 1775 to 1781, so we'll say seven years. Britain was the most powerful country in the world. America was born. America was in its infancy. The British Army was almost impregnable. In Boston, in New York, in Philadelphia, in Charleston, where the Navy could block up the ports. What George Washington needed to do was to get the British Army out of the country and things would turn around. In 1778, France joined the war as an ally of the United States colonies. And finally assisted George Washington in bottling up the British Army on October the 19th of 1781 at Yorktown, and suddenly, miraculously, America was free. Amazing. But was America really united? She was just a baby. Her government under the Articles of Confederation was very loose. The states continually promised to send funds to the federal government in Philadelphia. They didn't. They had their own problems. They had their own debts. Worse, they started quarreling with one another. Maryland and Virginia quarreled over rights to the Potomac River. New Jersey and New York quarreled over rights to New York Harbor and to the Hudson River and firewood being taxed. Vermont wanted independence from New York. Maine longed for independence from Massachusetts. The currency was no good. In fact, the currency wasn't good enough for to pay the taxes. The Massachusetts legislature taxed poor farmers. They couldn't afford it. I'm, of course, referring to Shea's rebellion in 1786. men like Washington and Adams realized that if the colonies didn't find a way to work together the European powers would come in and make separate treaties with them and things that had started out so promising would end tragically there would be no united colonies so in December of 1786, a convention was held in Annapolis, Maryland. Only five states sent delegates. But still the situation was serious enough that it was decided that a constitutional convention should be held in the summer of 1787. The original idea was to repair the Articles of the Confederation. No one knew what would come out of the Convention. The Convention, I think, was originally supposed to be about the 10th of May, but it took 15 days for all of the delegates to show up. Twelve of the 13 colonies sent delegates. There were 57 delegates there at the zenith of the Convention. States didn't stay the whole time. The youngest delegate was John Dayton of New Jersey, and the oldest, of course, was Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania. And men such as Alexander Hamilton and James Madison and John Jay and George Mason of Virginia and Roger Sherman and Governor Morris would debate the great issues of the day. And what came out of that was the most ingenious legal document in the history of the world, the Constitution of the United States. I don't need to go into great detail about it. All of you know that it consists of three branches of the federal government, the executive branch, the legislature, and the judiciary. I should have named the legislature first because Article I in the Constitution they adopted actually um, covers first the legislature. What's interesting about the Constitution is that it's primarily a structural document. It's not primarily a moral document. It's primarily structural. It allows for free government. But it also allows men to sin. After all, it upheld the slave trade until 1807. And it allowed allowed Indians and blacks and other people in servitude to be counted as merely three-fifths of the human being. And yet there was a promise. And the promise was really in the preamble. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, Provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States of America. Think about it. How was this going to happen? How would we form a more perfect union? How could we be... What methods would it take to establish justice and ensure domestic tranquility? Providing for the common defense was reasonably straightforward. You'd build a strong army. How about promoting the general welfare? What exactly did that mean? Well, fortunately, we had excellent leadership. Convention would last until September the seventeenth. And those still in attendance, still in attendance would adopt the Constit- would adopt the Constitution by a vote of 39 to 3. Three-fourths of the colonies would it would take three-fourths of the colonies to adopt, to ratify the Constitution. The first state to ratify would be Delaware in December of 17 and the ninth state to ratify was the state of New Hampshire on June the 21st 1788 New Hampshire would be followed by Virginia, New York, North Carolina and Rhode Island wouldn't adopt the Constitution until 1791 there was only one person who would be chosen and was almost unanimous to guide us through our early days as we went from our infancy into our youth his name was George Washington and he was far more remarkable even than his generalship George Washington was a man of little schooling he conducted himself away in a way to earn the admiration and the respect of Harvard graduates such as John Adams, graduates of King's College, who became Columbia University, men such as brilliant men such as Alexander Hamilton and James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, who had degrees from William and Mary. Washington would be elected by the Electoral College, President of the United States, on Valentine's Day of 1789. And he would be formally informed of his election in early April. On April the 30th of 1789, he would take the oath of office at Federal Hall in New York. There was no Chief Justice. Robert Livingston would administer the oath of office. He was Chancellor of New York. I don't exactly know what the Chancellor of New York did, but that was Robert Livingston, and he administered the oath of office. And the amazing thing about George Washington was his capacity to construct the federal government. The Constitution didn't give guidelines on how the, the federal or how the executive branch should be structured. In just about nine months' time, George Washington constructed the executive branch, the Department of State. He would ask Thomas Jefferson to come back from France, where he was minister in France, to run the State Department. His aide-de-camp, the brilliant Alexander Hamilton, would run the Treasury Department. His old friend from revolutionary days, his artillery captain, John Knox would run the War Department and his neighbor Edmund Randolph would be the first Attorney General. He would also appoint in that time the first five members of the Supreme Court the Judiciary Act of 1789 would be passed. And so with the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights would be ratified. Many of the states that originally balked at adopting the Constitution said that they would adopt the Constitution if it would include the Bill of Rights outlining the rights of the press and the people and the states. And so the first 10 amendments were ratified by September of 1790. Was one other piece of legislation that was passed. It's rather fascinating when you think about it. Young America was in debt $35 million. Not a lot of money today, but it was big money back then. About eleven million dollars of that $35 million was owed to France and the Netherlands and I think Spain. The other 25 Million dollars we pretty much owed to ourselves, to merchants and so forth, to suppliers of equipment, and the rest. In order to do this, Alexander Hamilton, who had put together our coinage, thought the federal government should pay the war debt. And these war debts were in the form of bonds, bonds that had been. The, the southern states, many of the southern states and, and, and the planters had had sold their war bonds for a fraction of their worth. And So there were many people in the south that didn't like the idea of this elitist from New York enriching his friends in the banking business. But there was a political deal. It was the first major political deal that was made in 1790. Hamilton got together with James Madison and Thomas Jefferson and they worked it out. It was a real estate deal. One of the things the South wanted very much was to move the capital geographically closer than New York. And so it was agreed that in 1792 the federal government would move from New York to Philadelphia and perhaps by 1800 it would be ready to settle in a federal territory that would be carved from. The states of Virginia and Maryland. I'd say that George Washington, even before the first year was done, had was passed, had done enough to be voted to anybody's Hall of Fame. And of course, he was unanimously reelected in 1792. His second administration wouldn't be quite so smooth. One of the things Americans knew how to do very well was to protest, to rebel. The farmers of western Pennsylvania, their primary crop was corn. But it was much cheaper, much more profitable to market that corn as whiskey. People liked whiskey. People bought whiskey. They got a better profit for the whiskey well the country was broke and the federal government needed the taxes and so Alexander Hamilton and the Federalist Congress and President Washington agreed to a whiskey tax and the farmers of western Pennsylvania rebelled Washington knew full well that one of the things he had to do was to enforce the writ of the federal government and so in September of 1793 he started west from Philadelphia at the head of an army of about fourteen thousand men. It was an army larger than the Continental Army was at any time during the revolution. He didn't go all the way. And the rebellion was short-lived. There were some casualties. But most people were pardoned and the tax was paid. Also, what was happening during that time was there was beginning to be a real division in the political parties. The two, of the, most, the two most strong-minded men in the cabinet were Alexander Hamilton, the brilliant Secretary of the Treasury. Hamilton incidentally was not born in the United States, he was born in the Bahamas to a Scottish mother and some think a black father. Didn't appear black, but he was a man who made it on his own, and he was a man with his own ideas, and he didn't suffer fools very gladly. He was a bit of an elitist, and like many Federalists, people who those were the those those their their theory was a strong central government that would support banking and industry. On the other side was Thomas Jefferson, the former minister to France, the author of the Declaration of Independence, who believed the government should be smaller. Yeoman farmers were his idea of what the United States would look like as it grew. Diffused power among the states. And so they began to clash. They even differed in their foreign policy. And this brings me to the second problem that uh, that President Washington faced in his second administration. Britain had not moved from the forts she'd built in the western part of the United States, bordering the Mississippi. And George Washington wanted her out of there she was involved in a war against France as I said earlier one of her many innumerable wars with the French France was still in revolution but she was at war with Great Britain and France thought that it was time for us to help her out and Thomas Jefferson thought the same And President Washington sent the Chief Justice of the United States, John Jay, off to Great Britain to see if he could work out a treaty between Britain and the United States. And he was partially successful. The British agreed to abandon the forts in the West and to give us free passage to the Mississippi River. What she didn't agree to was to stop boarding American ships and impressing American citizens into her service. Washington would like to have stood up more firmly to the British government, but assessing his country and its resources, he decided he just couldn't risk a war. So he signed the Jay Treaty and recommended that it be adopted by the Congress. And it was barely. But the luster was off, even for President Washington. And by, 17, and by 1796, after eight years in the presidency, he was nearly 65 years old. It was time to retire. And so on September the 19th of 1796 um, in um, in the Daily Inquirer, I think it was called, in Philadelphia, there was a letter from General Washington to the people of the United States announcing his retirement there were two things he recommended he he recommended first that we not be involved in alliances with Europe that we have commerce with all but no firm political alliances and we would keep that for about a hundred years and he also recommended that we refrain from organizing into political parties but that process was already underway there's an aside here. I think I, I need to point it because, because it's rather fascinating when you think about it. Hamilton and Jefferson, who were the leaders of the two political parties, established newspapers, and, and Jefferson's is most interesting. Jefferson, was Secretary of State, hired a gentleman by the name of Philip Fresno, Freneau, F R E N E A U, as a clerk in the State Department. It's paid by the taxpayers but he put out the National Gazette for two years as a clerk in the State Department the Gazette of the United States was put out by a gentleman under the direction of Hamilton named John Fenno, F-E-N-O he had Feno and Feno now as far as I know that was not paid for by the taxpayer so political parties were well underway they couldn't be stopped washington saw them as instruments that could only cause unrest it was his idea and i think the idea of many of the federalists that the country should be ruled by the better born anyway by men i suppose by men not women back then but by men who had the time because they had the resources to give to public service It was unrealistic and of course it didn't happen. And in 1796 we had our first election. Presidential candidates were Vice President John Adams for the Federalists and Thomas Jefferson for the Democratic Republicans. Now in those days, the candidate who got the most votes in the Electoral College was President candidate who got the second most votes was Vice President. Both teams did have tickets, but their Vice Presidents didn't receive that many votes, and so they were President and Vice President, and this was the problem that John Adams faced. Remember, I already pointed out that there were differences between Jefferson and Adams in the area of foreign policy. France was pressing America hard to become involved in the war against Great Britain. After all, she'd come to our aid. Jefferson, as vice president, would often, in a very real way, undermine John Adams. He would receive visits from the French delegation in Philadelphia. and It was very difficult for John Adams Negotiate his way through this chaotic situation, but he did. His crowning achievement was that he kept us out of war with France. It was close. There was the XYZ affair. You know, if if, if you want to ask questions about these, you can. There was the XYZ affair where France wanted to charge us a lot of money, even to negotiate. Even though she wanted our help, she was going to charge us, she was going to charge the United States government for negotiating with her, Foreign Minister Talleyrand. And, of course, that outraged the American people, and they said, not one cent for tribute. Um, John Adams made a fatal mistake, though. With all of the pressure on him, he supported adoption of the Alien and Sedition Acts. An alien who was not a citizen, an alien of course by definition is not a citizen of the United States. If thought to be subversive, could be expelled from the country by order of the President. Citizens of the United States, if they owned a newspaper, and they were too critical of the President of the United States, could be fined and even jailed. It was was a very elitist piece of legislation. It did have a time limit on it, and of course it did run out in 1801. But it did Adams irreparable damage. And so we come to the revolution of 1800. Adams and Jefferson would square off again. And this time the vote would be close, the campaign would be bitter. And there was the real possibility of a civil war. When the the Electoral College reported, Thomas Jefferson and his Vice President Aaron Burr each had 73 votes. John Adams had 65, it would go to the House. House, of course, would eventually choose Jefferson. Adams knew that he knew that it would. But there was now bitterness between the old those two old friends. Thomas Jefferson would take office on the 4th of March, 1801. And he delivered one of the most conciliatory inaugural addresses. I've ever read. We are all Republicans. We are all Federalists. The marvelous address. And it did a lot to heal things. Now, as I said at the outset, I'm not I time won't permit me to go into everything, but I and I'm only going to hit the high points. One of Jefferson's last-minute appointments was John Marshall, a cousin of Thomas Jefferson to be Chief Justice of the United States. Marshall and Jefferson never liked each other. Marshall was a Federalist, Jefferson of course being a Republican, but the the discontent, the the unhappiness between them went way beyond that. It was Thomas Marshall who would establish the Supreme Court its right to review cases, review laws that were passed by Congress. That started with the case called Marbury Marbury versus Madison. Uh, I'm not going to go into the into the case, but it was it was um, a case where an appointment had been made, but the commission hadn't been delivered, and Jefferson didn't want to appoint um, Marbury. Marbury sued. And the Supreme Court ruled that Jefferson was right. But that was the first time that the Supreme Court began to, or started ruling on on measures that were passed or proposed by the President. And from from then on, measures passed by Congress, as well as uh, measures that were matters of state law, could be reviewed by the Supreme Court. In 1802, the 12th Amendment to the Constitution was passed, having the President and Vice President elected on different ballots. This didn't do anything to cool off the political situation. But the big measure, the big achievement of the Jefferson administration was, of course, the purchase of Louisiana. By this time, Napoleon was ensconced in France, and he was an emperor. He soon realized that he couldn't fight in Europe and administer the Louisiana Territory. And he certainly didn't want Britain to get a hold of it. And so in 1803, Jefferson sent James Monroe and Robert Livingston to France to negotiate the possible purchase of the Louisiana Territory. And he purchased it for about $15 million. It was about four cents an acre. The United States doubled in size. And Jefferson sent his secretary, Meriwether Lewis, and William Clark, who I believe was a cousin of the, um, or maybe a nephew, of George Rogers Clark, who had been um, a revolutionary general during the Revolutionary War. Yeah, better be a revolutionary general in the Revolutionary War, a general of the Revolutionary War, fighting in the western area of the United States. The trip would begin in July of 1804 and conclude in September of 1806. Uh, they would survey the area. They would negotiate with the Indians. They would go all the way from St. Louis to the Pacific Coast. The Louisiana Purchase went from the Mississippi to the Pacific Coast, touching the Pacific north of Spanish California and south of British Columbia. It was a triumph for Jefferson, but the second problem that Jefferson would face in his second term was the Embargo Act. Britain and France, again, were pushing the United States to become involved in a war it wasn't ready to fight. Jefferson hated to defy France. But he knew, as did Washington, that we were not ready to be involved in a major European war. And so he issued an embargo, which of course meant that the merchants and bankers and businessmen of the Northeast and even, even the Cotton South could not trade with either the British or the French now as was the case with the Louisiana Purchase many strict constructionists in Jefferson's party understood this to be unconstitutional and in the north the merchants of New England and New York were especially angry because the depression set in. There was no income. So finally at the end of his administration he repealed the embargo. Sec- he would be succeeded in 1809 by his Secretary of State James Madison. James Madison is known, of course, as the father of the Constitution. And Madison, like Jefferson, would try to keep us out of war. But war was inevitable. And in June of 1812, war was declared. The merchants didn't want it, but the war hawks of the West the of the British were stirring up the Indians and making it hard to sell land in the Ohio Territory. That territory that had the Ohio River on the south, the Mississippi on the west, the Great Lakes on the north, it was difficult for settlers to move in because of the activities, the warlike activities of the Shawnee Indians. The Shawnee Indians had two great leaders. One was Tecumseh, he was the military and political leader. The other was the prophet. And William Henry Harrison, who was the governor of Indiana, general in that territory, would of course um, fight the Battle of Tippecanoe in 1811 and defeat the Indians and the prophet would die. investment in land was always important to America as it grew and the land values would be the result of almost every conflict that would come up in one way or another and so by 1812 men like Henry Clay and John C. Calhoun South Carolina South Carolina had a lot of investments in the the West Grant for the declaration of war, and so war was declared, and it started out badly. I'm not going to go through the whole war, it would be meaningless. Um, I'll just touch on the high points. It started out very badly. Um, William Hall, who was an old um, Revolutionary War commander, was put in charge of an invasion into Canada. Men such as Clay and Calhoun, and Webster, and so forth wanted to see us take Canada, annex Canada. He invaded Canada but then he got scared. He thought he would be surrounded by the Indians and so he retreated back to Detroit and he was surrounded and besieged and defeated. In fact he was court-martialed, even sentenced to death but because of his past service James Madison pardoned him. Things would go a little better in 1813 even though Britain had a superior a superior navy Oliver Hazard Perry would defeat the British navy on Lake Erie and he would telegraph President Madison we sighted the enemy and they are ours in October of 1813 William Henry Harrison did invade Canada and he came to war with Tecumseh And this time, Tecumseh was defeated and killed at the Battle of the Thames. And while he was in Canada, he invaded Troy. Troy is now known as Toronto. It was called Troy back then. He invaded the city. He didn't occupy it, but he burnt several government buildings. And the British would retaliate. When they invaded Washington the following year, they would burn the White House and the Capitol. 1814, as I say, was the final year of the war and it it was marked by the invasion of Washington, D.C. by the British. And of course the British would eventually move out to Fort McHenry, where Francis Scott Key, while visiting a British ship, saw our gallant flag, our gallant star-spangled banner waving in the breeze. the war would end on Christmas Eve 1814 the only problem was nobody told Andy Jackson about it Andy Jackson Andrew Jackson was down in New Orleans and they got word that a British the British fleet was about to invade the city and so on January the 8th 1816 the Battle of New Orleans took place you know we only lost eight men and twenty wounded The British lost 2,000. It was the most incredible battle in the history of warfare. And, of course, America had a hero. The war was over, and it was what they called the era of good feeling. A gentleman by the name of James Monroe was elected president in 1816, another Virginian. all was well. Until 1820, the British, or I'm, I'm sorry, the South, which counted on slave labor, was always nervous about whether or not there might be more Northerners and Southerners in Congress. South was largely agricultural and depended on slave labor. The North was industrial and depended on paid labor, cheap as you please, but nevertheless paid labor. And the number of states in the House and the Senate could make it uncomfortably economically Especially if the industrial North were favored. In 1820, Missouri applied for recognition as a slave state, and the North wasn't sure it would be a very good idea. The legislation is a little complicated, and I won't go into it in any detail. But ultimately, Missouri was invid- in, was was. Uh, brought into the Union as a slave state and Maine as a free state. Twenty-four states were now in the Union. Thomas Jefferson, retired, now the chancellor of the University of Virginia, was frightened. And in a letter to a friend, he wrote about the slavery issue, an issue that he had failed to tackle. And he worried about it as a fire bell in the night. The demarcation line that said that slavery could not, there couldn't be slavery except in the state of Missouri, above 36 degrees, 30 minutes parallel uh, north, was a demarcation line. And Jefferson said that a demarcation line and the passions of men the line would grow deeper and deeper and deeper and eventually there would be conflict moral issues would increase the passions of men as with money and so it would come to pass in 1824 a special election up until that time well okay be- beginning in 1816 beginning in 1816 um, the um, uh, since they, well in 1816 there was a, the, the, the federal the federal the Federalist Party died out in 1816 and so there was only one party in the country. Now, normally, the party, the the Congress would nominate a candidate for president. This was called nominated, a president could be nominated by the caucus. There were three candidates in 1824 there was Secretary of War William Crawford, there was John Quincy Adams, Secretary of State, and he was the author of the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, Rather than James Monroe, that was the doctrine that warned Europe about establishing any new colonies in the Americas. The caucus nominated John Adams in 1824. Or, I mean, I'm sorry, the caucus in 1824, the Congressional Caucus nominated, John, or, or nominated um, um, William Crawford. But the state legislatures also nominated candidates and they would nominate Andrew Jackson. The, late, the state legislatures in the South and in the West would nominate Andrew Jackson, the hero of New Orleans. And the legislatures in the North and the East would nominate John Quincy Adams. And again, the election would be close. Jackson would have 84 votes, electoral votes, and Jackson would have, er, and and um, John Quincy Adams would have about 65 or 70, and it would go to the House of Representatives. The Speaker of the House at that time was Henry Clay, and Henry Clay decided that the best way to become president someday. The best way to become president someday would be to become Secretary of State. And so he gave his votes to Adams, and Adams appointed him Secretary of State. Jacksonians announced this as a corrupt bargain. It wasn't fair. The man who would gotten the most popular votes was not going to be president, and they resented it. John Adams was about as honest a man as you could possibly imagine. And he claimed that he gave the secretaryship of state to, John, to, to um, Henry Clay because he was the most qualified man to have it. But the Jacksonians never believed it. And so John Quincy Adams, as bright as he was, much integrity as he possessed would not accomplish anything or much of anything. The only significant piece of legislation that was passed during the Jackson administration was money for the establishment of the Smithsonian Institute. The corrupt bargain did him in, if in fact consciously engaged in that corrupt argument. I want to talk. take a minute and talk about Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson would be elected in 1828, elected president in 1828. Andrew Jackson, plain spoken, ambitious, a lawyer, a judge, a man who pretty hard to get along with sometimes, rough, ready, Um, orphaned, very young. Uh, He was was a, a prisoner of the British during the Revolutionary War. He was living in South Carolina at the time. He and his brother were taken captive by the British. Never liked the British after that. He would be elected President of the United States. And it was a bitter campaign. And the thing that people picked on Jackson about was the fact that he had married his wife, Rachel Robards, when she wasn't divorced in 1791. He eventually discovered the error and when the divorce came through, he married her again. Andrew Jackson fought more than one duel over insults to his wife the Jackson era would be an era in which democracy would widen in in the western states no longer would a man have to own property to vote debtors prisons would be gone expansion would increase Of course, Andrew Jackson would pick a fight with just about anybody, and one of the people that he had a very hard time was with, with was Nicholas Biddle. Nicholas Biddle was the president of the Bank of the United States, which had been established during the Madison administration in in, seven, in 1815. And in the Bank of the United States is where the where where the where the federal government kept all of its funds and he thought it was too elitist and he decided to get rid of it and he did get rid of it the second major issue and again we get back to the slave issue was the tariff of 1828 remember as I said earlier the south being largely agricultural depending on trade with Europe didn't like high protective tariffs The industrial north depended on protective tariffs to protect its industries. A manufacturer who wanted to sell something in the United States would have to pay a tariff. If the South dealt with tariffs, why, the the, the farmers in Europe could have tariffs, and of course that was especially bad for the South. And so the state of South Carolina took the position that as a free state, as a sovereign state, it could nullify laws it didn't like. And so it sought to nullify the tariff of 1828. And it also threatened to secede. You can see the pattern setting in here. Where as free as Americans were, they first on insisted they first insisted on the right to make a profit. No state would secede on Andrew Jackson. He just wouldn't have it. His vice president was John C. Calhoun from South Carolina. And these two willful men met at a Jefferson Day banquet in 1830. And people everywhere were interested to see how they would handle the toasts that were made that night. Andrew Jackson sitting across the table picked up his glass and he toasted to to the Union. It must be preserved. And Vice President Calhoun's toast was to our liberties, first, and then to the Union, most dear. In 1832, the legislature of South Carolina voted to secede, and Jackson told them that if they seceded, he would lead an army in South Carolina this is where it gets interesting. This is where we get to the clash that took place. We talk about the Trail of Tears. There are five nations of Indians. The Choctaw, the Chickasaw, the Creek, the Cherokee, and the Seminole Indians. And These were not savages by any means. Especially the Cherokee. The Cherokee Nation um, in fact, had representative form of government. They built roads. They built houses. They even had um, a warrior by the name of Sequoia, who established a codified, a Cherokee language. The reason South Carolina was the only southern state to secede and this happens to be what I have gathered from my reading. The reason why the other states didn't secede was because Jackson had made an agreement with them. He would help them clear their lands of these Indians if they would stay in the Union. And so beginning in 1832 they began to move the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, the Creek, the Cherokee, and the Seminole West. Expansion. Land speculation. That's what it's all about. About thirty or forty thousand Indians in the five tribes died crossing the Mississippi into Oklahoma territory. Seminole would resist the most in Florida the Seminole War which lasted from 1845 to 18, 1835 to 1842 would result in the death of 1500 United States soldiers and of course many more Seminole their leader was Osceola and the only way the United States government was able to capture him was during a time of truce Came out during a truce. Flag had been held, and the United States took him anyway. And he died in prison three months later. I think we're getting short on time, and we're getting close to the. But I want to go up to the Mexican War, and then I think we'll we'll stop here for tonight. Um, i talked about. The steady population of the United States. I want to give you somewhat of an idea as to how the population increased, because it's a major factor in the move west. The U.S. population in 1790 was 3,929,214. In 1800, it was up to 5,308,483. I could give these these numbers. Um, Basically, in just broader figures. I mean, you're not going to remember all of these numbers. But went from 3 million to 5 million in, in, in 1800, 1810, we were up to 7 million. By 1820, we were up to 9 million. By 1830, 12 million. And by 1840, 17 million. You can see it's growing. We go up to 23 million by 1850 and 31 million by 1860. The next major issue was, of course, Texas. Texas would be a major factor in the expansion of the United States. Americans began moving into Texas in the 1820s. The government of Mexico pretty much left Texas alone until about 1830. Americans were moving in and bringing their slaves Um and the Mexican government decided in eighteen thirty the Catholic Church decided that slavery was a sin and they outlawed, and they outlawed slavery in Texas. And you can imagine what happened after that. Texas wanted to rebel. John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson both had agreed to purchase Texas. But Mexico wasn't having any of it. Finally, in 1834, they jailed um, Steve Austin. And by 1836, Texas was in full rebellion. And of course, there was the Battle of the Alamo. 185 soldiers faced 5,000 Mexicans outside the Alamo and finally Santa Ana breached the wall and only three people left the Alamo alive, a woman and her 15 month old child and a slave and the reason that Santa Ana let them live was to go and warn Sam Houston that he better surrender. But Sam Houston didn't surrender. At the Battle of San Jacinto he defeated Santa Ana and the Treaty of Velasco was signed. Texas would remain a republic until 1845 when along with Florida she would come into the Union. Americans believed that they had a manifest destiny. The idea come, came from a magazine edited by John L. O'Sullivan. It was his United States Magazine and Democratic Review. And he believed that Providence had willed the American people for the fulfillment of our manifest destiny to overspread the continent allotted by providence for the free development of our yearly multiplying millions. And the American people bought it they weren't settling North America because they had to they were selling settling America because it was their destiny this was young America this was young America so I asked the questions again um, what was it really all about young America had been free since 1781 and here it was 1845 what was she free for? was she free to grow or free to expand? And there's a difference what was America's profession? Was America's profession property or human rights? What was America's faith? Liberty? Was liberty her faith? Or was money her faith? Only time would tell. Thank you, Bob.
0: Review, progress, bars, dash, silence, 205.
1: There we go. Is anybody there?
0: Yes, we are here. Uh, I want to thank you, Ed, for this is just a fabulous survey, uh, just full uh, yet full discussion of American history. If someone uh, said, you know, my history is a little shaky or... I don't remember. I've been in school a long time. This is just outstanding. Let's see if anybody has any questions along the way, please. Yeah,
2: nice good. job, uh, Ed. Um, I, I was, was the, um, was that Shays' Rebellion you were discussing? Was that, the, that wasn't that was the Whiskey Rebellion. And was it in Pennsylvania or Massachusetts? I was just trying to remember. We read a book on, on it, and I, I just wondered whether they were the
1: same event. Uh, the Shay's Rebellion was in Massachusetts, and that was in the spring of 1786. Uh, and that was where uh, the legislature had um, was increasing the the taxes on on the land, the poor, the the land of, far, of farmers in western Massachusetts, and they didn't have the money to pay it. Uh, they thought the taxes were unfair, and of course. They did what Americans do at times like that. They took their shotguns and they surrounded the legislature, and, and um, shots were exchanged. Uh, Daniel uh, Shays would not be captured. He would go into he would he would die two years later in Vermont uh, in poverty. Um, and uh, he, uh, but there were some deaths. But that was the whiskey rebellion was um, in Pennsylvania. That was in. That was in 1793. That was when George Washington um, headed the 14,000-man army that left Philadelphia and marched into western Pennsylvania to quell that rebellion. That was where the the, the farmers whose primary crop was corn, uh, they would, um, as I said, that, that it was easier to sell corn as whiskey than it was in its regular state. It was much too bulky in its regular state, and it wasn't as profitable. So those are the two different rebellions.
0: And I also add, um, much as I love Jackson, I think you know he was he was uh, hard to get along with, but did he not, uh, by destroying the Bank of the United States, um, and have, what, he created the sub-treasury system and all that, did it not lead to a terrible depression, the Panic of 1837, uh, which he left to Van Buren, and Van Buren has to deal with that, which he's not able to. But uh, what do you think of that? I mean, could you comment on that place? I mean, destroying the bank was a mistake, was it not?
1: Yeah, I, I think it was a mistake. I don't know whether it was... I, don't, see, now, uh, I This is a little difficult for me, because I don't... He issued what he called specie. Uh, whether the specie, whether that created the inflation and, and the, the, the other banks began to fail. Um, you know, what you the, the depressions of the 18... Of the 18... Um, hundreds were, were, were very volatile. Um, yeah, I, I think I think Jackson deserves blame for the Depression of 1837. Uh, ja- uh, Van Buren, of course, had to clean up the mess, as you pointed out, and wasn't able to do it. I mean, uh, because, again, the Democrats back then didn't believe uh, that it was constitutional for the federal government to become involved in stuff like that. In fact, back then, it was the Whigs that would become Republicans, you know the um, the merchants and the bankers and the you know the teamsters and stuff like that these people were the people that wanted the federal government to build roads and canals and harbors and and uh... Um, established banks that would you know give them easy money um, you know money for land development and so forth so yeah you're exactly right i i think jackson I don't love Andrew Jackson. I have a real hard time with Andrew Jackson. I I, I think he was a very just a very willful person. that um, he had some admir- admirable characteristics. There's no doubt about that. Um, but he was in fact, you know, his comment when it came to moving the Indians is that it's better to move them than to slaughter them. And yet, I don't think it would have taken too much for him to slaughter them.
0: And of course, wasn't the Didn't the Supreme Court rule that he couldn't do it, or something? And he said, "Well, let him leave the army. I'm, I'm doing it." I mean, he defied the Supreme Court, uh, as I recall. You're exactly right. Of course, you're the teacher, Bob. You've taught this stuff more than I ever have, and uh,
1: so I've, I'm the one that kind of look up to you. I mean, it. Um, yeah, I mean, he, well, he said the Supreme Court has ruled. Let them enforce it. You know, up until then. Um, Indian Affairs used to be handled out of the State Department. Um, And yet the Supreme Court ruled, I can't remember what what the case was in 1731, uh, that the Indians weren't a foreign nation. They were a nation within a nation. And So therefore, um, protesting that it should go back to the State Department, uh, uh, the Supreme Court uh, said that uh, they had no standing with the court because they weren't a foreign nation and so therefore um, the Supreme Court couldn't rule on them as a nation. They were a nation within a nation.
2: One of the things that I always wondered about Ed is when you think that the Indians were really forced to move westward I always wondered what the number or the percentage if there was even a percentage of the population in the states in the United States in these years before the Civil War of blacks actually was or Negroes I guess as they were called back then and did it ever occur to any um, Negroes to try to move west or as the Indians did or was that considered too dangerous because I wonder, I, I realized that many of them weren't educated and May not have had the means, but did it ever occur to them to do, even though the Indians were forced, did it ever occur to them that they could choose to move west, or is that a silly question?
1: Well, Bonnie, you know it's not a silly question. You should know better than that. Spanky, panky, panky. No, I mean, it's, you don't know the answer to the question. That's fair. No, um, remember that the blacks were pretty much bound in servitude. There was a structure for making sure that they stayed on their. Own. Their farms. They didn't mingle with the Indians. It, it just wasn't. It just wasn't an alternative. Uh, there was more talk amongst abolitionists about perhaps, um, you know, exporting some blacks to Liberia. In fact, that would come up in, later in the Civil War. Um, so that, um, but no, there was there was the, 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 that just that just wasn't an option. And remember. I mean, I don't imagine that blacks would have survived much better than the Indians. Uh, the Trail of Tears was just terrible. I mean, of course, um, so no, I mean, it just never was an option.
2: I think uh, when they did open land up, uh, I, and I don't know if this was after the... It must have been after the Civil War, but a lot some settled in Oklahoma, but generally they weren't too welcome in where white people were settling, I think. That, that was a problem, but they did settle around but beforehand they were indentured the slaves pretty much and uh, I was see what was my quote I just get back to Andy Jackson uh, I kind of always thought he I'd heard that he was kind of a little off his rocker that um, he one thing he was uh, you know he was the guy that shot the uh, English guys down in Florida they almost execute. they almost hung him for that then because they were Foreign representatives, and then he actually, you know, where you shoot every tenth person. He did that to one of his troops because they were disobeying orders or running, uh, not fighting. And uh, he was always fighting duels, so he had a lot of lead in bullets still in him. And he actually drank lead for um, medication, so they thought he might have been a little bit. uh, It might have affected him.
1: Yeah, I mean, he was a real character, Don. He really was. I think he was a little crazy. I really do. I, um, I don't. I mean, he, obviously he was functional. And he had he had an idea of what he wanted to do, but of course he was always you know looking out for his own. Um, yeah, he fought about six or seven duels, and uh, he carried an ounce of lead under his heart uh, for the rest of his life. I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, the, the man lived to be, what was he? Born in 1867, died in 1767. Born in 1767, died in, in, uh, on June the 8th of 1745. Um, he was addicted to tobacco, you know, smoked pipe, corncob pipe, and coffee. He didn't, as far as I know, he didn't drink much hard liquor but I mean he lived a real he had a hell of a rough physique there's no question about that and I mean the Indians called him long knife um that he was cruel that he was crude there's a little question about that um but he had a he had a strong will um he had a capacity for getting people to follow him um except for the Indians and again, the Indians as far as I'm concerned are the big mark on his record but except for the Indians I mean um, there was elitism in the country and some of the things that were accomplished in his administration such as uh, um, you know states began to uh, allow non-property owners to to vote and, and, and to allow for squatters rights on, on public lands and, and uh, did away with debtors prisons um, there's no question, but that he, you know, he achieved some, some good things. Uh, but it's, it's, he's the president that's the, he, in fact, he's the hardest president for me to like. Um, Grover Cleveland is next, but but, um, and Woodrow Wilson kind of comes after that, but a very distant third. But uh, Andrew Jackson is just. Just impossible
2: wasn't the another thing on that was you know that I they were saying the National Bank was kinda actually owned you know they, they were supporting a number of legislators in Congress now that could have been fixed they didn't have to get rid of the bank to, to control that
1: but uh, that was another argument well you're right about that Don uh, in fact Daniel Webster um, was the bank's lawyer <laughs> I mean, you know, especially. Uh, uh, I mean, um, conflict of interest laws were very loose back then. But I, I think by both, I think both Webster and Clay um, were employees of the Bank of the United States. So I mean, there were a lot of cross purposes there, and of course, they both cordially despised Andrew Jackson.
0: Well, I think uh, at this point. You know, we can go on. You guys can talk after, but officially, we're going to uh, wind up the program. But again, Ed, and I, uh, you, as usual, they just get better and better. You could just feel and uh, hear the passion and the research that you've done. We thank you so very much. I think we're due back on um, July 27 for part two. Uh, June. June 22nd we have another special program. Ira Fistel will do his part two on the life and works of Mark Twain so we're trying to find various ideas and if and, and we may have a surprise for you I've got to write a letter on that but I won't say it now till it's been confirmed but uh, we're trying to come up with uh, programs but certainly at the top here or near the top always is Ed Cooney and we thank you so very much Ed for an outstanding job.